Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And our topic today is Fordlandia, which is Henry Ford's failed attempt at this utopian company town in the middle of the Amazon. And the idea sounds good enough. They're going to be neat suburban homes and swimming pools and doctors and wholesome Detroit-style food. And oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, let's just, just roll with me here for a minute. Time clocks, that sort of thing. There will not be malaria, knife fights, wasted money, or caterpillars. Well, clearly. But guess what? It does not work out at all. And this was a suggestion that Candace had given us a few months back after press coverage for Greg Grandin's book, Fordlandia, The Rise and Fall of Henry Ford's Forgotten Jungle City, came out. And there's a lot of good information we were able to pull from reviews and such, but we still haven't uh, gotten our hands on a copy to read the entire thing. I actually put my name on the waiting list at the library, so... Fingers crossed. But the book did really well. So I'm hoping that the next step for this Fordlandia reliving will be a musical. <laughs> <laughs> and if someone listens to this podcast and then goes and writes a musical, I want to get some tickets to that, please. And Sarah has a pitch for an opening chorus. So if, if you're good and listen to the whole podcast, she just might sing it at the end. We'll see how it goes. But first, we're going to give you a little bit of background on the man behind Fordlandia, Henry Ford. And by the 1920s, Henry Ford had been in the motor car business for decades. He's established his moving assembly line. He's rolled out the Model T and even the Model A. Um, he's revolutionized the industrial working world with his labor theories, the $5 workday, the 40-hour work week, profit sharing. And he's also dabbled in the idea of model communities, which is probably a natural extension for someone who's so interested in model factories. Definitely. According to an article by Wayne Curtis, so far this dabbling in model communities has gone pretty well. He's set up a small logging village in northern Michigan, and that's worked out fine. He's stocked them with everything a working man could want. You know, there are rec centers, schools for the kids, churches. But by the late 1920s, Ford is still feeling a little discouraged, despite all these accomplishments. World War I has sort of shaken him up a little bit, and people aren't so crazy about all his anti-Semitic views. Imagine. And, yeah, imagine. And he's an older guy now, too. He's in his 60s, and he's starting to look back to his own rustic, sort of rural past and feel a little nostalgia for it. So when he has a business opportunity to establish his own rubber production company in Brazil, he jumps at the chance. He has this challenge now of creating a model community around this. And think of how impressive that would be, taming the Amazon into this series of paved suburban streets. I'm speaking as Henry Ford here, not as myself. <laughs> and creating a society that's connected to global industry, but still small and quaint enough to grow its own vegetables, raise its own animals, to to be its own little place. Homey. Yes. A U.S. diplomat actually calls it like it is, and he says, Mr. Ford considers the project a work of civilization. So it's not just a business prospect. It's really this whole utopian idea. But we have to wonder first, why rubber? Why the Amazon? And to understand that, we need to go back a little bit into the 19th century. And talk about some rubber barons. 
So rubber trees are native to the Amazon, and when rubber became a global commodity in the 19th century, some people became very, very rich. But then Englishman Henry Wickham smuggled out sacks of seeds, and eventually people discovered that rubber actually grew a lot better in Southeast Asia, where none of its natural predators lived. And because there aren't natural predators, you can establish huge plantations full of rubber trees that produce a consistent product, unlike South American rubber, which was still collected from wild trees. So the rubber barons of South America are just out of luck. Yeah. Also, according to Robert Santos's The Economic History of the Amazon, British and American companies were already sort of looking to get rubber production out of Brazil, partly because anti-slavery campaigners were not a fan of South American labor conditions. But decades later, Ford is concerned about this Asian corner that's developed on the rubber market. And he has to have rubber for his car tires. He can't really afford to mess around, have this one major source of rubber somehow be cut off to him. And he's well, also... Yeah, he doesn't want to ship it from halfway around the world. Yeah, if, if if it can be grown in South America, he would rather import it from South America than Asia. And so he gets the idea that if he established his own rubber plantation in South America, he wouldn't have to worry about any of the outside factors. He would own it, he could control the costs, and he could ensure that the industry wouldn't be monopolized. And that brings me to my favorite line in Sarah's outline, <laughs> but he'll do it his way, the Ford way. Which makes us both think <laughs> Ford, Ford tough. <laughs> and he's not the first guy to have thought of American-controlled rubber production. Back in 1923, the U.S. government had started looking into the rubber resources of South and Central America. A University of Michigan botanist, Carl LaRue, flags a spot in Brazil near where the Tapajos River feeds into the Amazon. By 1927, Ford has chosen this spot as his own and has arranged a deal with the Brazilian government. 2.5 million acres of land, plus police protection and duty-free imports of supplies, in exchange for 9% of the plantation's profits after 12 years. And in 1928, the supplies from Dearborn start heading south, so... The plan is in action. And four months later, we have a steamer and a barge arrive with this pile driver, a steam shovel, tractors, a locomotive, prefab buildings, parts for a sawmill, basically everything that you would need <laughs> to set up a suburban company town. A parade of machines. Except that it's in the Amazon. And it's basically a company on a boat, Compania Industrial do Brasil, which is going to be Ford Motor Company's rubber harvesting division. And that's how a spot named Boa Vista becomes Fordlandia. The intention or the plan is to employ 25,000 people, house 100,000, and export 6 million tons of rubber a year. So let's see how it goes. So it doesn't take that long to actually set up the town. The town is going to be run by managers imported from Michigan, and native workers will be the ones who are collecting the rubber and doing other tasks that are related to to running the whole the whole city, the whole model city. And the native workers are pretty interested by this job because Ford pays wages that are double to what they're used to receiving. Plus, you get housing and medical care and food. So it sounds nice enough. 
And, you know, the houses look very cute, situated on neat little streets with lawns. They've got power lines run by a diesel generator. The workers have access to well water from spigots, while the white-collar and U.S. workers have running water inside. Uh, Several schools, there are swimming pools, these Michigan-made fire hydrants, and the Villa Brasileira part of town has tailors, shops, restaurants, shoemakers, a butcher, a baker, not sure about the candlestick maker, but they're all subsidized. And working mothers have a nursery or a baby clinic. And again, as far as health goes, if you die, you get a paid funeral with a U.S.-made coffin. I'm kind of imagining that on their promotional brochures, like, (laughs) and if you die. Baby clinics, coffins. (laughs) Um, But there are issues. And the main issue is just ignoring the customs of the people, ignoring the climate, ignoring how work is done in the Amazon. Ignorance in general. Yeah. It it reminded me of when we talked about the Jamestown settlers who are trying to live in North America like it's old England and making fatal mistakes. So we have fatal mistakes made here, too. And we're going to start with housing. So the traditional form of housing in this area is... uh, well suited to the heat and the humidity of the Amazon. You have cool dirt floors and thatch roofs. But the new style in Fordlandia is cute little Swiss cottages, Cape Cod style model homes, all with asbestos insulated metal roofs. So you can see where this is going to go with a an insulated metal roof under the Amazon sun. One employee calls them galvanized iron bake ovens. And a Harper's reporter said that Mr. Ford and Brazil are somewhat in disagreement in matters of doors, screening and heights of ceiling. So the houses are not to most of the people's suiting. The indoor bathrooms gross out the workers. They don't like having that all in the house. So this is an immediate problem for making Fordlandia work. And the rubber harvesting doesn't go well either. Again, the traditional way workers lived um, kind of spaced out and they would harvest their latex and get paid by the pound. So for what they actually accomplished, the Ford way, workers lived in suburbia. They go to work every day and this requires them to keep track of their hours. So how long they've been there as opposed to what they actually produce. And there's this Flintstones style whistle that's mounted on top of the water tower that can be heard seven miles away. And it signals meals, the start and the end of every workday. And it gets even worse than that because these old time management systems don't mesh well. Yeah, the old way is to use the sun and the seasons as your clock and calendar. So when you're harvesting rubber, obviously you work at the coolest parts of the day. So you work at dawn, you work at dusk, you don't work from six to three, which is going to be the Ford schedule. And the new ways also, uh, we have the whistle we just mentioned, but also Punch clocks, like like it's crate, like crate and barrel. Yes, I, I know that from experience. So, you'd have to swing by the main building on your way to the fields, even if it meant a detour just to punch in this clock. And to to make things even more ridiculous, we're running on Detroit time because this is Ford, and we have to. The boss is is different too. So our. Plantation managers of old may have paid terrible wages and worked you entirely too hard. But it was this sort of paternal system where your boss might also stand as its godfather to your children. 
And the new way is very hands-off. Ford never visits Fordlandia, let alone the entire country of Brazil, which must have been demoralizing to yeah. people who weren't used to that kind of management. Well, and even people, um, even the Michigan managers, that would be, I think, demoralizing if you had moved your whole family all the way down to Fordlandia and you, your boss isolated. never sets foot in the country. Definitely isolating. So... Uh, a additional thing, it, it sounds kind of minor, but just think about if, if this were your life and you were in the Amazon all the time, entertainment, the old way would be native dances, native songs, that kind of thing. The new this way. Is, this is my favorite part. <laughs> we have sing-alongs, poetry readings, mandatory square dancing, which I'm, sounds I'm like sorry. a nightmare. <laughs> Dosey Dow. And just, just as a note, I mean, this is the 1920s and 1930s, so square dancing isn't really the North American norm. I know it sounds like a long time ago, but Ford likes this old-fashioned style of dancing. He likes polkas, that sort of thing. Not Shouldn't we the, be doing the Charleston or yeah, something? Yeah, he's not into the sexier dances that are sweeping the nation. And again, Charles Morrow Wilson writes in Harper's, The natives did not choose to square dance on the village green or to sing the quaint folk songs of Merry England or to treasure Longfellow. Yeah, you can imagine if you've just worked a six to three shift, maybe the last thing you would want to do is listen to some Longfellow on the Village Green. And I think you would have to force the people to square dance because <laughs> I don't know why you would want to otherwise. Uh, another entertainment issue. Remember that these are model communities, so there will be no drinking. And no one really pays attention to that one. The native workers immediately buy their stuff from river boats that come up on payday. And according to Grandin, the white linen suit guys who are trusted to go gather seeds from the jungle would actually binge on alcohol and get so wasted that they would start baptizing farm animals with perfume. Or maybe they just had too much fun square dancing. <laughs> I don't know. But the most problematic uh, is is with food. The old way, of course, was eating traditional foods with traditional service. And, and Ford's vision, everyone eats in a mess hall that's incredibly hot inside and only serves Detroit food, wheat bread, oatmeal, and canned Michigan peaches. Which is, as Georgians, come on, <laughs> canned Michigan peaches. Um, the visiting writer, Charles Mara Wilson, again writes, a workman's mess hall was set up, but native workers did not like the wholesome Detroit-style cooking and complained bitterly of indigestion. North American fare in the jungle no more pleases the customers than a quick change to Amazon fare would please you or me. So... The major problem, though, with the whole food scene is when they cut waiter service to save money and make the whole dining hall cafeteria style. And Ooh, a buffet. Yeah, and so <laughs> the workers, for one thing, aren't used to cafeteria style food. Um, they're not used to waiting in line. Again, you're working in the sun all day and then you have to stand in line for your lunch. And the result of this change is a riot. We have one worker saying, I'm a worker, not a waiter. And workers ransack the dining hall. They drive trucks into the river. They smash windows and wreck the sawmill and the radio station and the time clock, of course. Symbolic. Yeah. And American managers are panicking. They, some seek cover in the jungle or some go out onto a boat that's tied up and just wait it out. But it's, a bad sign if the change to cafeteria-style dining sets off a riot. I think you have a major problem. Our most damning issue, however, 
is the rubber itself. So our old way of growing rubber and harvesting rubber was to gather it from wild trees that grew spaced out in clumps. And the space provided some protection from pests while these clumps provide protection from heat. Ford's vision is to plant 1.4 million trees in neat rows because that's how factory supervisors like things. The problem is that when you do that, it attracts leaf blight, fungi, and pests like caterpillars. Plus leaving the trees completely exposed to the elements. So the rubber production, which is the whole mission of this, is completely uh, ridiculous. It does not work at all. And even if they'd been smarter about cultivating the rubber, the terrain of Fordlandia is terrible As is the climate, the soil erodes. It's incredibly hot and humid, which is too much for our Michigan managers. Uh, When it rains, the water collects in low spots, which leads to epidemics of malaria. And when it doesn't rain, we have a dry season from July to November, where the waters of the river drop up to 40 feet and the boats can't come in. And it's not just the mosquitoes. We've also got ants and moths plaguing our people. And we have violence, too. So this isn't just a bad camp scenario. We have things like knife fights going on, especially in the early days, but also later with the cafeteria riot and a protest over the employment of workers from Barbados, who the native workers were upset that these imported workers were getting higher wages. So Ford finally realizes that he picked the wrong spot. He admits defeat. Yeah, this whole thing. Well, he kind of doesn't admit defeat, though, because in 1934, he trades part of his original concession for 703,750 acres to the north and sets up yet another model town, which is going to be an improved version of Fordlandia called Belterra. I hope there's not quite so much square dancing. So there are some improvements, like a manager who makes square dancing optional and Some lessons learned. Ford is willing to erect a Catholic church immediately, which is something he was opposed to doing in Fordlandia. And we've got doctors who are working to eradicate malaria with quinine. But this is still no dream city, and certainly not for Ford when our Amazon workers unionize in 1939. Seriously. I mean, I was kind of blown away by that fact, unionizing the Amazon workers in 1939. But unlike Fordlandia, we actually do get some crops out of Belterra. Amazing. They're pretty pitiful, though. In 1942, there's a crop yield of 750 tons of latex, which are from Asian tree grafts, which are less susceptible to all these pests. And Ford had hoped, though, for 38,000 tons annually. So clearly we're falling far short of that goal. Harvests of other crops like eucalyptus, teak, and balsa are also small due to strict regulations of timber exports, and some are used to trim Ford Lincolns. So that's a little memento, I guess, from Belterra for anyone who has one of those. But they they have a few other random things, too, cinnamon, ginger, coffee, tea. Still, nothing much comes from it. Belterra is not a particularly productive town. And the war, World War II, is really hard on the city because German subs actually stop supply ships from reaching the city. So you can imagine suddenly you're relying on your little gardens and uh, it would be tough times without your Michigan tin peaches. 
It's finally all over by 1945. In December of that year, officials at the Ford Motor Company announced, Our war experience has taught us that synthetic rubber is superior to natural rubber for certain of our products. And they would return the concession to Brazil for $250,000. And that's it. So it makes us wonder, how much did this whole thing cost? It has to have been a fortune. And it, it was. Ford Motor Company says that it cost about $20 million, But then a few years later, documents came out that showed it was more like $25 million. Some historians put it as, as much as $30 million. So clearly a huge waste of money. So it may have been a waste of money, but at least we've got some cool ghost towns out of it. They're still there today. It'll take you about 18 hours on a riverboat to get there, but you can look up some pictures and Google images. They're pretty spooky. And I think there's been some talk about reviving Belterra, but yeah. not so much Fordlandia. Fordlandia is a lost cause still, apparently. Now, I know I promised that Sarah might sing a song at the end of this podcast, but she's actually losing her voice. So instead, we're going to recite what we think would make a lovely introduction to the Fordlandia musical that you're going to write for us. We'll try to be emphatic about it, though. (laughs) Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Fordlandia, Fordlandia, eat your oats and and don't don't die of malaria. And that is our final word on Fordlandia. And that brings us to listener mail. Our email today is from listener Marcella, who wrote about our Madhari podcast. And she said, My great-granduncle was a reasonably famous Guatemalan writer at the turn of the 20th century. His name was Enrique Gomez Carrillo, and he was the Guatemalan consul in Paris from 1899 onwards. He was a notorious womanizer, and family legend has it that one of his various lovers was Matahari herself. He wrote a book about her, and while whether he was involved with Matahari or not is on the level of speculation, he was accused of being responsible for bringing her to the French authorities and deceiving her into returning to Paris, where the French detained her. And in fact, the book he wrote about her was supposed to be Enrique's attempt to disassociate himself with the whole case. Enrique's last wife was also somewhat well-known, Consuelo Suchin de Saint-Exupéry, later wife of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who, of course, is the author of The Little Prince. So thanks for writing to us, Marcella. I think she also mentioned he's buried in Père Lachaise, too, yes. which is where Oscar Wilde, of course, ended up. And if you have any cool family stories to send us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Missed in History or join our Facebook fan page to see what we're up to. We recently posted a photo of some of the cool mail we've gotten, so be sure to check it out. And our homepage is at www.HowStuffWorks.com if you'd like to search for some great history articles. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History Class blog on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. 